Please turn with me in your Bibles again to the Gospel according to Mark. Today we'll be looking at Mark chapter 10 verses 32 through 34. Mark 10, starting at verse 32. If everyone's there, would you please stand again? This is no ploy to keep you awake. I'll be reading these three verses from the English Standard Version. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is the third time that Jesus takes his disciples aside to tell them what's about to happen to him. If we look at all three, it's very easy to see how this third time includes more information and is more urgent. It's just going to be about a week or so until all this does happen. The first time is found... In chapter 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Now this was right after Peter's great confession of Jesus as the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior. The immediate reaction of the disciples to this first time when Jesus tells them what's going to happen is apparently they could not swallow it. They could not believe that just Jesus was telling them this. And we know that because Peter, really for himself and all the rest of the disciples, actually rebuked Jesus for saying such a thing. It was then that Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of of God, but on the things of man. Now, obviously, the disciples heard what Jesus said, but as Peter's response indicates, they did not understand what Jesus must do and why he must do it. Remember, What I just read, I don't know if you caught that. Jesus said, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer, etc., etc. They were clueless, even as we tend to be. And what we should notice here about this first foretelling is that Jesus said he must suffer, be rejected, 
be killed, be raised. So using that word must tells us that what would happen was not from Jesus' devotion to some great ideal, but instead this was a divine imperative, an absolute necessity. And this was the essential and unalterable plan of God set in motion before the foundation of the world. It's God's plan of redemption. In other words, if this didn't happen to Jesus, there would be no salvation for anybody at any time. While Peter remains clueless for this purpose for Jesus, he does get it later after the resurrection. In his sermon at Pentecost, Peter explains who Jesus was and why what happened to him had to happen. In Acts 2, starting at verse 22, we hear hear Peter preach. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, the man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, etc., 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 The second time that we see Jesus tell his disciples what's about to happen was in the last chapter, chapter 9. For he was teaching his disciples again, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will arise. So after the transfiguration, Jesus again teaches his disciples about what's right around the corner. And notice here that Jesus said he's going to be, he's about to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and will rise. So what is he emphasizing here? He's emphasizing that what must happen will happen. It's a certainty. Jesus also adds that he's not only going to be rejected by the Jewish leadership, but he will soon be delivered into the hands of men. And this wording, the way it's phrased, delivered into or over to, that implies something horrible. It implies a betrayal. A betrayal by someone. And the twelve didn't understand again. And the text says that they're so distressed in Matthew's account that they were afraid to ask him about it. They were still clueless about the bigger picture. So today we come to the third time. This is easy to remember in Mark. Chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. Three times in a row. Don't miss the initial information in verse 32 right at the beginning. Jesus is on the road with the twelve. Where are they going? Jerusalem. They get this. Something big is up. It is coming to a close. 
you couldn't add any more drama to this whole trip. Then in, this is his last trip, the culmination of his life. This is it. And the disciples still don't understand what must happen will actually happen, but we're going to see they do understand the danger they're in. They won't really get it until after the resurrection again. The idea of a suffering and dying Messiah was just beyond them. These men knew that Jesus was literally walking into the lion's den. And if Jesus was the target of the religious establishment's fury and their rage, then who else would be a target? They knew it was them. The only way they could ever even try to process all this would be to try to desperately hold on to the belief that the Messiah would go into Jerusalem and conquer with power and authority and judgment. Had they seen some of that from him? Yes. They'd seen him calm storms, raise people from the dead. Why should they think any different? Well, because he told them so. But you can see this is what all of us would have done. This can't be. We've seen him. A word. And big things happen. The only way they could try to process it was to hold on to this belief that they were part of the actual conquering, the overthrow of Rome, being recognized as the true Messiah, the new kingdom, all right then and there. They couldn't fathom the Messiah, their beloved Jesus, really suffering and dying. But this march uphill, 14 miles into Jerusalem, didn't feel or look like a march of triumph. Especially now that Jesus is telling them for the third time, and he's adding even more details. Now, also here in verse 32, we learn that those with Jesus were amazed and they were afraid before Jesus even begins to tell them again what will happen. That's how we know that they knew how much rage and fury and planning the religious leaders had been doing this whole time and why Jesus had stayed away most of the time. And they therefore knew that Jesus was willingly and purposefully walking right back into the trap. It's one thing to get surprised. It's another thing to be going into Jerusalem, telling your disciples, this is what's going to happen. It must happen. It will happen. It's going to happen. And you be a part of it. So amazed and afraid, picture great astonishment and bewilderment. Sometimes these phrases even carried the idea of being immobile because of fright. Anybody been there? 
so absolutely scared you can't move. In other words, complete inability to correctly even comprehend or understand it and to react to this idea and event. That's how close these guys were. After three years of being with Jesus, of following Jesus, and giving everything up for Jesus, of trusting Jesus, now suddenly what's happened? Suddenly everything looks completely hopeless and pointless. And they just couldn't make any sense of it at all. To go into Jerusalem meant certain death. And now Jesus was confirming their worst nightmare as he continued toward the city and he told them what was ahead. In Luke's parallel account, Luke 18, Jesus tells his disciples, See, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. This is absolutely incredible to me, and I hope it is for you as we find out what Luke is talking about. Well, what are some of the examples, everything written in the prophets about the Son of Man? Well, let me just give you a few examples and then comment. The Passover lamb of the Old Testament was a type and a symbol of the future Messiah. In Exodus 12, verse 46, breaking the Passover lamb's bones was prohibited. And as with the Passover lamb, and contrary to Roman custom, you might remember in the story they were going to try to break his legs. Why? Because anybody crucified who was still living and they wanted to hurry up the process, they'd break their legs because they used the legs to push up on the nail to keep breathing. What happened when they got to Jesus? The executioner, that soldier, knew he was already dead. They didn't break his legs. No bones of Jesus were broken at his crucifixion, which is a point said specifically in John 19 and 1 Corinthians 5. What else? What are some other things that were written about the Son of Man, the Messiah, from the prophets. Well, Psalm 22, we just read. Did you notice some? Way to go, Art. The Messiah would be pierced. That's recorded in John 19. The Messiah, also lots would be taken for his garments. That's also recorded in John 19. In Psalm 69, he would be given vinegar or sour wine to drink. That's recorded in Matthew 27. In Psalm 22 again, very first verse, he would cry out in pain. Matthew 27. In Psalm 16, he would rise from the dead. Obviously, that's recorded in many places. Acts 13 is one of the best. Psalm 110, he would ascend to heaven. Acts 1, lots of places. In Zechariah 9, the Messiah would enter Jerusalem on a donkey. That's getting ready to happen in Mark, just around the corner. In Zechariah 11, the Messiah would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Does that ring any bells? 
In Zechariah 13, the Messiah would be deserted by his friends. All the guys ran off. Matthew 26, 31. Jesus is teaching that his, his disciples that death is imminent. And because they cannot process why that will happen, what did Jesus do here that Luke records? Where did he point them? He pointed them to the scriptures, to the Old Testament prophets. And we don't have some big discourse here where all of a sudden he tried to convince them, stop, pull up the lectern and show them everything. He just pointed them there. Why? Because he knew when he went through this and he rose from the dead, they would be searching the Old Testament scriptures for stuff they'd missed like never before in their lives. And the Holy Spirit would be making it crystal clear to them that everything that had been prophesied had been about him had been carried out. And they'd walk through it, missing most of it. I don't think that's a lesson they forgot. And it was what was proclaimed in the gospel thereafter. He pointed them to the Old Testament prophets, to things they had missed about the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. What are you thinking right now about your Savior? Uphill, into Jerusalem, and he cares enough about his guys not to get frustrated with them because they were clueless, not to give up on them. He kept planting seeds, pointing to things that they would remember and things that they would discover again in a new way. Jesus is teaching them, and he has been teaching them the whole story of God's redemptive plan in the Old Testament, that it points to the necessity of an acceptable sacrifice for sin. And they would get it at the right time. Therefore, Jesus as the perfect sinless man, the Messiah, the Savior, the Anointed One, is the perfect and acceptable sacrifice. I hope each of us can identify a little bit with these men. These men were Jews who knew the Old Testament sacrificial system in ways that none of us ever will. But to have all that all of a sudden become clear at some point, and realize that Jesus did fulfill that, that he was that type. He was the sacrificial fast lamb. You can't even describe how excited they're going to be. But we have to go through all this first. And his point is, he's got to show them that he has to go through this first. And he knew that they weren't going to be able to handle this right now. As much as they loved him as much as they cared, but what a foundation that he had laid. God revealed his redemptive plan gradually in the Old Testament scriptures. Have you ever thought about that? Yes, as you've tried reading through the Bible once again, and you're still 50 chapters behind. Why can't we just spell all this out? Why isn't there a cliff notes? Why isn't there a summary chapter that just has it all written out? Well, there are some. 
But to go through the whole story and pick it up each time you read it is quite an incredible experience that gets better and better. How did God reveal his plan of redemption gradually? Let me just mention a couple of, a couple of big, big things. First, when Adam and Eve sinned, they immediately became aware of their nakedness, and to provide them clothing of skins, animals had to be killed from the beginning, and guilt and shame had to be covered by sacrifice. That was the first great principle of redemption taught in Scripture. But those skins, like all countless sacrifices thereafter, were only symbolic. They could cover man's nakedness, but they couldn't really cover his sin. So the first plan, the first great principle in redemption was that guilt and shame had to be covered by sacrifice. Okay, you with, you with me now? Okay, what do you think's next? The second principle of redemption that God revealed was that he would provide the necessary sacrifice for mankind. Really? Well, if animals couldn't cut it, it has to be something more. God revealed that he himself would provide the necessary sacrifice for mankind. Remember when God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, through whom the divine promise would be fulfilled. Remember that great account? God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, his only son, through whom the divine promise would be fulfilled. Abraham was able to raise that knife and be willing to plunge it into Isaac's heart because of his sure belief that God could raise his son from the dead. We read that in Hebrews 11, verse 19. That's the proper commentary on the passage. The new comments on the old. And when the Lord stayed Abram's hand, old-fashioned word means what? Kept it. And provided a ram to take Isaac's place on the altar... Abraham named that place of sacrifice in Genesis 22:14, great name, the Lord will provide. So we have two principles of redemption already, big, big pictures. Guilt and shame had to be covered by sacrifice, and then secondly, he himself would provide the necessary sacrifice for mankind. The third great principle of redemption God revealed was that acceptable sacrifice had to be unblemished. When the death angel was about to pass over Egypt, striking dead all the firstborn, God provided for the Israelites to be protected by what? By smearing the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorposts and lentils. Okay, we've got three now. Guilt and shame had to be covered by sacrifice. God himself would provide the necessary sacrifice, and that sacrifice had to be unblemished. And the fourth, during the wilderness wanderings, 
God revealed to Moses the fourth great principle of redemption, that sacrifice is the central act of acceptable worship. And the details of the, what we would, well, it is, the intricate, very intricate sacrificial system, God showed Israel that sacrifice would be inherent in every act of true worship because it opened the way to God. But in the requirements and rituals of the Old Testament, these principles were only pictured. No sacrifice offered by anybody, any man, could ever cover sin and provide a substitute for himself or be morally and spiritually unblemished or become an acceptable act of worship to God. So who does that leave? Only God himself could present such a sacrifice. And it's that divine sacrifice to whom all the other sacrifices pointed to. All of them. And that's what these guys had missed, but which was becoming really, going to become really clear very soon. And when that perfect sacrifice was made, Jesus, the others no longer had significance. When Jesus died on the cross, the veil of the temple was torn in two, separated the sacrifice, the most holy place, from the holy place. God tore it in two, top to bottom. Wasn't the men going the other way. Top to bottom. The validity of the sacrificial system then ended. Because Jesus had provided the sacrifice. And then less than 40 years later, the temple was completely destroyed in 70 AD. So even the possibility of other Old Testament sacrifices ended. Anybody who puts their hope in current Israel rebuilding a temple, you're on the wrong page. That's not the plan of redemption. Jesus fulfilled that. The disciples knew they were going to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with Jesus, but they did not know that Jesus was himself God's ultimate and the only true Passover lamb. Only God could have had this plan. They were still thinking lion. Conquer the best. Jesus was thinking lamb. Lion, lamb. These guys were still thinking about the kingdom now. Jesus was thinking about the sacrifice necessary to populate the kingdom. These guys were still thinking about glory and being a part of it. Do you realize the next section of Mark is about James and John arguing who can sit on Jesus' right hand. Okay, that, that's going to be an emphasis coming up that just is like an exclamation point to this whole thing. They were off. Jesus was thinking about suffering and death. So in our passage, what does Jesus say will happen? Verse 33, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes. Chief priests, by the time of Jesus, these men were the hereditary aristocracy of the priesthood. 
the office of high priest was actually handed down from father to son. What about the scribes? These, they didn't get their position from heredity, but they got theirs by education. They were the Old Testament authorities, especially in Mosaic law and all the rabbinic traditions. Let that sink in a minute. How many scribes recognize Jesus as the Messiah? That's right. It's hard to think of anyone. So these two groups made up the hereditary and the intellectual aristocracy of Judaism. And that's who he's going to be delivered over to, betrayed to. Jesus posed such a threat to their power that they, along with the Pharisees, had been conspiring about how to destroy Jesus. We first read about that in Mark chapter 3. They got together with the Herodians of all people and were trying to figure out how to destroy him. And that's exactly what they finally do. They will condemn him to death, but they have a problem. What is it? They condemned him to death, but they couldn't execute him themselves because Rome would not allow other nations that they had conquered to carry out the death penalty. So plan B for these guys was what? Find some way to get Rome to, to execute him. So it was necessary for the Jewish authorities to, as we read in our text, deliver him over to the Gentiles. In this case, it was Pilate and all those who carried out Pilate's commands. In verse 34, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. Now, even though this physical suffering and especially the crucifixion itself were horrendous and excruciating, the greatest suffering Jesus would endure on the cross was the spiritual and emotional suffering. Let me read for you a text you probably have heard, but in this context, it really packs a punch. This is Isaiah 53, first eight verses. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of the ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. This is the creator, King Jesus, the Lord we're talking about here. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yes, we yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus died to conquer sin and its penalty, which is death. He died that those who believe in him would never have to die and face the wrath of the holy, almighty God in eternal judgment. Luke's parallel account ends with this. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. And like if we didn't get that, he adds it a third time. And they did not grasp what was said. Part of the reason they just didn't get it was because of their false expectations of what the Messiah would do and how he would institute his kingdom and what place they would have in this kingdom. And because they were focused on this one false perspective that was not an accurate rending of scriptural tooth, they couldn't see beyond their own misunderstanding. We need to hear this. If we have false expectations of what we think God owes us now, we will not be able to understand what God is doing in our lives. Not even come close. We do this very same thing even though we know, we know how Jesus fulfilled God's redemptive plan. So the question is, how many of us have similar false expectations of what we think God should do for us? Of, and what we think his kingdom should look like right now for us. And what place we should be enjoying now among the people of God. The disciples did not want anything to do with bearing crosses. I don't know anybody who would vote for that. But they didn't want anything to do with it when they were told this is what was coming. They didn't get it. They didn't put their Old Testament together. They didn't see the point of the sacrifices of the unblemished lamb. They didn't see what was necessary to accomplish it, that God would do it himself through his son. They only wanted to be great in God's kingdom, in Christ's kingdom. Got to ask it. Do we have the very same issue? Do we want to be great and live without the problems and hassles of ordinary sinners? You know, because we belong to Christ. Jesus has to address this very issue again, as I said earlier, in the very next paragraph of our text. We are called to die to ourselves and live for God in serving him and others. This is, I don't know whether you've recognized this, I hope so, but as we go through the Gospels, each writer manages the content a little bit differently. Can I say this? It is no accident that we see these issues come up and then the disciples appear again with 
we're arguing on who's going to be greater. We're arguing over, you know, actually, me and my brother would like to sit on your right or your left, you know, next to you. And this do, you do you see how all this goes together? It gives us a picture of how, can we say, patient Jesus is, but he knows when they're going to get it. He knows what he has to do first in order for them to really believe in this way. And he's willing to do that. Praise his name. We would be lost if he hadn't. The most basic answer as to why we may be completely out of sorts ourselves and disgruntled with life and miserable and ungrateful and a pain to some of the people who love us the most? What's the basic answer to that? It's because we still aren't on board with being a living sacrifice to our God. And we know that deep down inside. But we're holding on to what we want, what we think we deserve a whole lot more. We just don't really like God's plan or we can't glory in his sacrifice for us in Christ Jesus, his son. You know what that means? It means that we just may not really believe God is really worth our love and devotion. That's really the bottom line. And even then, when we recognize that and get on our knees and pour it out to him, He's still so gentle with us. He still cares. We belong to him. We belong to him. So what happened to the disciples? Why did 11 out of these 12 end up serving faithfully and suffering greatly, all but one of them dying a martyr's death. Do you realize that? John was the only apostle that did not die a martyr's death. And he was exiled on an island. So what happened to these guys? What did they find out that changed them from running off in the middle of the night and worrying about where they were going to sit in the heavenly feasts of the, of the marriage supper? What What changed? There's one answer. They knew, K-N-E-W, they knew the risen Savior. They knew him. They didn't just know about him. They knew him. There's a reason why those disciples on the road to Emmaus, why it says their hearts burned when, they, when Jesus was there and they didn't know it was him and he opened up the whole Old Testament and showed how it all pointed to him. Can you imagine that? We're having a seminar next week. Jesus is coming in person. He's going to do that for us. The road probably took all day, so I'll bring your lunch. We'll be here. Can you imagine that? We have all of our life that he's given us now to try to figure these things out as the Holy Spirit opens up his word and shows us how everything points to Christ. So that you can know him. After all, this is God's son. 
who came to this earth and limited himself to a physical human body undertook all, all, all of the attacks upon him, his person, his plan. And he still went to the cross. He came to die for sin in my place and rise again to prove that his sacrifice was acceptable God. These guys finally did get it. They finally did get it. But we won't see that happening until after the resurrection. So it's not really going to be in this gospel. It might be in the book of Acts, gals. Better sign up now. And in the meantime here, Jesus uses these final days before the cross, and that's what we need to look at. How does he use these final days? He uses them to prepare them for the understanding that's going to come later. What grace. It's just amazing what he does. Not only does he carry through the sacrifice, it's how he cares about these guys all the way. He knows they're going to remember every detail. May our eyes be open to the glories of the cross and may we not misunderstand God's whole purpose because we're only interested in what we can get out of it now. Let's pray. Oh God, we echo that as a prayer and we pray that you would use us to encourage one another and we have ample opportunities to do that in so many different ways. May we know you, and may that be demonstrated as we love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Thank you for your patience, your grace to us. May we show the same. May we point each other back to him and to what he accomplished and why we're still here. And we ask that in Christ's precious name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? We'll let Paul do that for us today. By the way, this is one of the shortest benedictions. That's a compliment to Paul after the way he writes. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. You're dismissed.